0: Really glad that you all are here with us today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. If you want to figure out your way how to find there in a blue Bible. I don't know if somebody has already... 748 would be the page number there. Easter, um, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead... Uh, one of the things we do well here at Echo is just approaching topics with blatant honesty because there's likely some sort of correlation between our celebration of, of Easter and spring paganism festivals. Um, it looks like the church probably co-opted a pagan festival to ensure that we would focus our eyes and intent on Jesus, which is funny because when you look at those who are skeptical <clears throat> of all aspects about Christianity, specifically the resurrection, they'll say, see, all it was was just a replacement religion. But friends, what we look at when we open up the scriptures and when we even mind deeper just in trying to examine uh, why we believe, Why why believe anything at all within this world? What we see is that there's something more profound to it. It wasn't just the redemption of some sort of religious tradition for another one. What it came down to and comes down to more than this is that what the narrative of Jesus, what our faith does, is it brings meaning and fulfillment to our life. Not to say that fulfillment and meaning can't exist outside of it, but we... Who follow Christ have it at a much more robust level. So we are in our studies of uh, somewhere. Nope, not going to do it. I know. At some point we'll move this. At uh, some point we'll move this computer and screen and stuff, and we'll get get it there. Do I have it? That's nice. In our study of the Book of Luke, and this is one of the interesting things is that we've taught through three of the Gospels. Uh, Here in the uh, 10 plus years that we've done Echo. When we did the Gospel of Mark, it didn't line up perfectly to the landing point. So, this is just the second time in uh, 10 plus years of speaking that we arrive at the eastern narrative after studying it all throughout the year. So if you've been with us for months, we've been going through the book of Luke. We talked about during Christmas time the story of the birth of Jesus. We saw different aspects of his ministry and today is the culmination of all that Luke has talked about. And in order for us to really get into the resurrection, we have to start at some aspect of what happened on Friday. So Kathy, if you will, And I know I've misguided you because actually we're going to go back and read some portions of chapter 23. Please read verses 50 through 56 for us today.
1: Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment.
0: The brutality of Good Friday and this lack of action on Jesus is immediately followed by action for those who knew him best. And one was a, you know, what we see somewhere is somebody who had some sort of means. This Joseph of Arimathea who provided a new tomb for Jesus immediately after his death. And we see some other actions there. It's interesting because, again, being in a pastoral role, I have been around people and situations constantly over my life after people have passed away. And we all have different reactions to losing somebody that we love. Sometimes it's just a crippling, paralyzing sadness that overcomes us. But then what I see from other people is that they are moved to action. Because for some reason, there's something that clicks in us that, okay, this person's gone and now I need to do something. I remember specifically in my own life, my uh, father's uh, sister passed away suddenly. And I went over to be with my family, and next thing I knew, like the carpet in the living room was all ripped up. And he's like, "Come on, we're putting subflooring in." Like the night uh, that you know, the night of the day that my aunt passed away, I helped my father put in subflooring because he just felt like he needed to do something. And I think this is what happens here. And the one thing that Joseph could do is because he had this tomb is to find a place where Jesus. Could be laid. I want to show you this, which is, you know, it's a little maybe off kilter or not, but, you know, we have a decent idea, we think, of where these events happened in Jerusalem. It's not a large area of real estate, and the earliest believers. Uh, You know, they they didn't worship these sites, but they held them as holy. And the complex, it's one complex that encompasses all the area of where we believe Jesus was killed and where he was buried is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you need to read up on it sometimes because it is a political mess because at least four major faith traditions have some sort of say in that. And as a result, what's really interesting, it's a Muslim family who actually has the keys to the church. Because they believe that they can be objective enough to not side with a certain aspect of faith. But if you can see, I put this little cutaway on the right side of it. Is that the church was literally built into a hillside where they believe that these two incidences happened, where Jesus died and where Jesus was buried. And as you look inside the, and this is a cutaway illustration, is that there's a few different places where things happen right here. When you go up to the area of Calvary, they've designed it as such that you actually ascend stairways. There's no, how do I say it? There's no authenticity to the feel of it. Because as you're going up these stairs, you're like, I'm just in the middle of this church. And the, there's a little piece of rock, though, at the top where you can actually see the ground that the church was built into the side and see where it happened. As you go down in this place where you come in the front is where they believe Jesus was laid after he was taken down from the cross. And then just a little place inside this massive cathedral there's a smaller church where you can enter in and it's only big enough to hold like three or four people kelly was there and her claustrophobia got the best of her because you are in the midst of somebody just so close and that's supposed to be the remaining remnants of where the tomb was now what's interesting if you can see in the bottom left hand corner there this was actually one of the most meaningful things because they're like come on let's go further and you're like what's left in this church and exposed from the walls there was just this little area where they said, through excavations later, we opened it up and found some of these tombs that date back from to the first century. You like when we usually visualize a tomb, we, we think that Jesus was in like this big freestanding place that that rock, the reason it was so huge is that it was like six foot tall and it would only take, you know, an angel to move it. No, really, the, the rock that would have covered the tomb would have been round, but it would have only been a couple feet. Still would have been heavy. But, but not that big. And to get into the tomb, you would have had to crawl in. And there might have been a little clearing right there. And then inside the, the area were these little slots. And they were carved into them because they would place the body. Because recognize that Jesus being in the tomb, or any Jew in the first century being in the tomb, they were only going to be laid there for about a year until their body decomposed. And then they would collect the bones and they would put it into a box called an ossuary. But here's the thing, is that so close... And we know this through the scripture, so close to where Jesus was killed, this guy Joseph just happened to have some real estate where he had a tomb ready to go, and he just said, I can move into action, I can do this. So a forgettable figure is brought into it. But the one I want to focus in on, I just wanted to just state, the one we want to focus in on are are these ladies. Because Jesus' ministry had always encompassed women, which was very, very unique within the first century. I mean, it was a highly patriarchal slash chauvinistic culture. Women were not seen as equal even in humanity as men. But Jesus, being who he was, made sure that his entire ministry was surrounded by women who would support him and be on the journey. And when they have this great sense of sadness, their move to action, and theirs is, look, we have to take care of the body of Jesus. But here's the thing, if we look back into the New Testament, and understand the timeline, Jesus probably dies right about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And working out when sunset would happen in the early springtime and and there, probably the sunset was going to come about 6 o'clock or so. So doing all this stuff for Joseph of Arimathea to get the pilot to ask for the body, because moving the body from the cross in the first century was actually taboo. The bodies were left on the cross for a purpose, so the Romans could say, don't do this again, or this will be your end. But Pilate, who we see earlier in the Bible, was he had a heart for Jesus at least. And he said, yes, you can take the body down. You can put it in this tomb. By the time all this stuff progresses, it's probably night. And on Friday night, for Jewish people, the Sabbath begins. So we think of Sabbath as the day. But for them, it begins on Friday night. So these ladies who had this move to action were forced to inaction immediately. Because Sabbath, the day when you were supposed to do no work, came. And they were like, we, we want to take care of Jesus, but we can't. So they got everything prepared. And then they look at the next thing. And, Kathy, that's where we're going to now get into Sunday, Resurrection Day. Please read in chapter 24, verses 1 through 8.
1: On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words.
0: Pragmatically, if the women had said, okay, Sabbath actually ends at sundown on Saturday. And they're like, look, now we can move and go and take care of Jesus's body. Just the logistics of it would have been very difficult. Okay, again, uh, and here's a um, view, you know, of a recreation of a... And and this is probably later than the time of Jesus, but I don't know if you can tell, that stone is not very large, it's probably a few feet high. You know, if they had had to go in there and being, you know, some ladies, I don't know if any of them were, you know, MMAers. if they had worked out. You know, to be able to move the stone, and then the base logistics of trying to get into a very dark place to, you know, try to make sure that Jesus's body was well-prepared, you know, that it would have been complex. So you know what they say is they're like, let's just wait till Sunday morning. And we see that the resurrection begins early in those hours on Sunday morning. By the way, this is what happens when you check Facebook on the day before church and everybody's like, you know, hey, you know, how could Jesus have been in the tomb for for 72 hours? Like, it's such a Western thing for us to ask, you know? We're like, Wait, Jesus was in from Friday night to Sunday morning. That's not three days. That's like a day and a half, tops. Friends, just don't be so Western, okay? Understand that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are three days, okay? It's because it's not like there was a timer, like a Jesus clock somewhere where it was ticking. It's like you got to hold on because this is when it's going to happen. So recognize he's in the tomb on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Prophetically, he's in there on three days, okay? If you have struggles with that, you're going to have struggles with what we're talking about here in a second because they show up, And then there's a couple angels there, right? I love in the scriptures because here in the NIV it says suddenly. In some of your older translations, it's that good biblical word, behold, behold. It's like edu. My Greek is worse than my Hebrew, but it's like edu. Is this the word? It's just like a little thing. It's supposed to be a transition. It's supposed to be a smack in the face. Because you're like something has changed here, because they're going just to do their tasks, they're going in action, and then it's, behold, there's a couple angels here. Well, if some of you are biblical scholars, you're looking at, wait, Matthew and John, I mean excuse me, Matthew and Mark both only have one angel on the scene. And then here's Luke with a couple, and John has a couple. It's like, okay, were these guys not sober when they were writing their Gospels? Did they not have good email communication by which they could get this story straight? And some people are like, this just shows how it's all messed up. Recognize here too, just like the three days, could there have been, and you look at the other accounts, could there have been additional angels at those scenes? There very well could be. Why would they not have described it? Because friends, all of these gospels are telling stories to different people. Can I tell you the story that Luke was trying to do? Luke was trying to show throughout his gospel that there will always be two witnesses to affirm something happens. This is a biblical concept. The testimony is supposed to be affirmed by two witnesses. Luke does it. You know, at the birth, if you were with us, uh, during Christmas time, when Jesus goes to the temple to be confirmed, there's Simeon and Anna are there. At the transfiguration, where Jesus goes high on a mountain and his disciples are watching this weird freaky deaky thing where things just get all crazy, Moses and Elijah are there. At his trial, Jesus is, is sitting sits before both Pilate and Herod Herod Antipas, who judge over them. And even at the cross, there's two witnesses. One on the cross next to him, an evildoer, and similarly a centurion, who are both like, this guy is God. So everything that Luke has is he throws a couple witnesses in here, and he says, this confirms that these aren't just fairy tales, that these stories are true. And that's what he's trying to accomplish here. We might not like it, but friends, this is eastern literature and we are western so when we apply this we're going to find those gaps what i'm telling you is it doesn't mean that we suspend belief because we'll talk about this later but it's the idea that we just have to trust this is what happens and i'll tell you just as we look at the scene the thing coming back to are these ladies These ladies who are just like, they show up and they expected that they were going to spend their Sunday morning making sure that Jesus' body was prepared to be laid in the tomb for a year. And what they find out are angels and empty two and them saying, he's gone. And not only is he gone, he talked about this. Don't you remember And can you imagine that? It's just that one point where I don't know if you've ever had a piece of knowledge or information. Because sometimes it takes us so long to learn something, right? And then there's that moment of clarity where everything becomes clear. And you're like, that's what it means. Can you imagine that? As these ladies were walking back, they probably said, remember when Jesus said this? I just... I, I just, you know, I, I just thought he was being profound and I had no idea what was going, but I shook my head up and down like, yeah, Jesus, I get it. Had no clue. And then when it all makes sense, when clarity comes and they realize, wait, Jesus wasn't just this amazing, passionate teacher who we saw do miracles. He was extraordinary because he defeated death. We saw him put into the tomb on Friday. He's gone on Sunday. We saw a couple of angels there confirming this scene. What happened was amazing. Now,
1: And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened.
0: Now, Caitlin, this is why I wanted you to read this book. Because here are these women who, uh, you know, had firsthand knowledge of this information. And one thing that Luke does throughout his book is he tries to show how women have major roles to play within the kingdom. Because you see at the beginning of the book, there's a lot of time devoted, devoted to two ladies, Elizabeth and Mary, and they are speaking even prophetically, right? Elizabeth has a song of for Mary of what's going to happen. And Mary sings. Because they are basically setting the table to what their sons, John the Baptist and Jesus, would accomplish. But back in the first century, whereas like you can't remember this now. like You go to school and there's boys and girls and boys are punks and such is life. You go on. But back then, they came back and they said, Listen! We went to the tomb to fix Jesus' body up, and he wasn't there. There were angels. He arose, and they were telling a story. And the men were like, we don't care. It's really a, a profundity, isn't it? It's just like they came with the greatest news ever told in the history of the world, and we're like, we do not believe you. Now, you might just be like, well, maybe it's just because they doubted. No, I'm going to tell you that it's because they were women, because they were sexist. We have at the time, and we talked about this man a few weeks ago, there's a historian, a Jewish historian, from whom we have a lot of information about from the first century, named Josephus. And Josephus specifically talks to talks about how we are supposed to think of women and the words that they say. So Josephus, in his antiquity, says, Let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at least. Okay, so he's talking about this witnesses. We saw it with the angels. But Josephus says, And those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. So we need to make sure that they're upright people. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on the account of the levity and boldness of their sex. It's probable that they may not speak truth, either out of hope of game or fear of punishment. Amen. (laughs) Amen. So let's get back to what Luke is doing here. And again, this is why I love the scriptures. Because as so much as we want to thrust misogynistic concepts on the Bible, it's like, no, it's limiting. Friends, by the time we get to the New Testament, we see a, a, a faith that is more freeing of women and their roles within religious life than any other faith at the time. And it doesn't mean that the church has always gotten it right. Because there's plenty of cases, even in our lifetimes, that it's gotten it wrong. But the one thing to understand here, which is hilarious, is that these women go and they have this scene. And then they come back and it's just like, we don't believe you because you are female. And I love this little aspect too. Even Peter goes by himself and he's just like examining the scene. And he's looking and he's just like, this doesn't make sense. And he goes back, right? This is the way that Luke describes it. And it's described in different things, but I think Luke is being deliberate right here. Because basically, what is happening within this is just a scene that repeats itself. I think deliberately, God called the ladies to come here first and the men to deny it. Because it says something to our base levels of doubt and belief. And really, if we're being completely honest, that's what... I think the resurrection brings. You and I can get stoked about Easter baskets, lilies, getting a dress or a new shirt to wear on Easter Sunday, right? Because it's like it's this experience. But sometimes we still look at the empty tomb and we're like, like no skeptical scholar, by the way, no skeptical biblical literate scholar. So those who don't even believe it's all bunk believe that the body was still in the tomb. They really believe that the tomb was empty. It's just they come up with a different explanation. And maybe sometimes you and I still struggle with this. I think this is why I really resonate with Luke's telling of the story. Because you have Peter, who is like, you know, the first round draft pick of all like biblical characters, right? Like he is Jesus's guy. And yet he gets to the tomb after spending the same amount of time. He's just like, I don't know. I mean, it's empty. I'm just going to. Go back and contemplate this later. And then he comes around. And I think this speaks to you and I, not just to the ancient readers that Luke was trying to reach, but for us, because the most important question that we have to decide is was the tomb empty because Jesus actually rose from the dead? And the issue that we have is that so many times, even when we have faith, you have those moments of doubt. Don't you? And if not, maybe you're just a better Christian than me. Actually, what I would offer is that if you live your life and you have absolutely no doubts, then you're probably myopic and won't even allow yourself to consider the fact, which means you're brainless, okay? So when I see somebody who says, I've never doubted this, then I'm like, then you've probably never wrestled with it. And I would much rather us be in a place where we wrestle with the idea of what is the result of the empty tomb than we just say, no, it's got to be true because the Bible says so. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Luke is giving us permission to do here. He's giving us permission to grapple with it. And friends, people grapple with faith all the time. And they have since Jesus' tomb was empty. It's funny, I find myself, I love being around people who struggle with aspects of faith, who don't buy in, you know? I think it's just more fun to talk to those people sometimes. Because I'm like, you know what? You're right. I was a condition of my environment. I was born and raised in the church. I'm supposed to believe this, I guess. But I've come around to that. And those people who aren't, they usually don't do so out of blatant arrogance, right? It's not like, no, I want, you know, I just want to, you know, what is it? Laugh with the sinners, then die with the saints or whatever. Cry with the saints. Like, they don't usually do so out of pure hedonism. They do it because they're grappling with this. And if you're going to believe, believe. Bertrand Russell, who is a famous atheist, he's a philosopher, uh, basically was asked one time, if you were to meet God at the end of all this, and he existed, and you met him at the judgment, what would you say to him? And his response was, You gave us insufficient evidence. And you know what, though? As much as those of us of faith can laugh at that, I know people who are struggling with that, and I get that. You know? Now, what I would tell you is it's not necessarily, though, that the evidence is insufficient. There's multiple things, right? There's general revelation. In my conversation with my. Uh, friends who are atheists and stuff. They, they, I, I always ask them, I say, what's the most convincing, the most convincing argument that God exists? And they just say, general revelation, creation. Trying to make sense of it all. Because it's just usually too massive for them to be able to understand how it, it was just happenstance. And this is what's interesting, and as I would offer as we look at the Scriptures, are the Scriptures perfect? No. Do you have sometimes these little things that make us lose our minds? Because wait, if if Mark says there's one angel and Luke says there are two, then somebody's wrong, and they could all be bunk, and then everything is lost. I'm not saying that there might be not be issues, but I'm definitely saying that it's not insufficient. But recognize this, friends, is that even if we, believers, struggle with doubt, those who don't believe struggle with doubt too. And those who say... I'm an atheist because I know this to be true and I've never doubted that, I would say they're just as myopic as those of us who have believed and never considered the opposite. It was uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne who said of Herman Melville, uh, author of Moby Dick, talking about the position he took about his non-belief. He said, He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief, and he is too honest and courageous not to try to do one or the other. And basically what he was saying about Herman Melville is even though he had reached a point where he's not sure it's true, he really couldn't figure it out. It was difficult for him to do so. And that's why for us of faith, it's okay if you wrestle with the empty tomb sometimes. But here's the thing that it comes down to. What many of us want when it comes to faith is simplicity, right? We want it to be true. We want it to be certain. We want it to be convenient. But there's a deep, deep, Longing in our soul for that simplicity that we have to push away. Because friends, simplicity, even though it's desired, does not fulfill the complexity of the world. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, in his book Simply Christian talked about this. And I think it best does this. People often grumble as soon as a discussion about the meaning of human life or the possibility of God moves away from quite simple ideas and becomes more complicated. Any world in which there are such things as music and sex, laughter and tears, mountains and mathematics, eagles and earthworms, statues and symphonies, and snowflakes and sunsets. And in which we human finds ourselves in the middle of all is bound to be a world in which the quest for truth, for reality, for what we can be sure of is infinitely more complicated than simple yes or no questions will allow. What Wright is trying to say right here is even though we want to be, it should be simple. Why couldn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have gotten all together and got every aspect of the story straight. Understand is that life isn't simple like that. And when you thrust that simplicity on something that is so diverse and something so robust as eternal destiny, you're going to come with these things where you can't just have simple answers. Friends, the dots aren't going to perfectly connect for you. They never will. Happy Easter! Right? I messed this up. Because I'm supposed, this is what we're supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to slam dunk this thing. He's risen, he's risen indeed. And then, boom, like lilies, and we're gone. But here's the thing the reason that I love the complexity is because that's where the church sits, fits in. That's why we come together, that's why we have these moments. Because we need to recognize the role that this gathering plays. Right later in this book, it's a brilliant book by the way, it's the book as I'm working with atheists, I tell people, you know, if they if they say if there's one book right now that encompasses that could best encompass this, not the Bible, because you know, they're like, Let's not do that. But in one book, I give them anti rights simply Christian because Um, He does a very admirable job in this. But he says, what what do we do then? What's the church's role within this? Five things that we have. Then the first thing is is that we tell stories, okay, that understand this. As much as we're excited about Easter, as much as this is a Super Bowl of Christianity, it's the apex of what we believe, there's a whole, whole other set of narratives that we have to wrestle with. There's stories, and these stories give us glimpses into God. So as much as I want to say your faith is all about this day, Friends, it's much more robust than that. It's complex. That's why we tell our stories. We act out rituals. And for some of us, that ritual word, that's just like something that we're allergic to. Because we view rituals as bad. Even though we ourselves, you know, adopt non-religious rituals in every aspect of our life. Did you brush your teeth today? Don't know if you want to say no. But that is ritualistic. It's something that we do. And maybe every week when we do communion, you're like, well, is this hollow? And you don't realize that you have rituals, rituals in your life all the time. And what those rituals do to us is connect us back to the very per- first people, to the women who went to the tomb who had that same struggle. They took communion at the beginning of the church. We do that too. We're linked through the ritual. We create beauty. We offer new expressions through the Lord. We recognize that God has put us here not just to look to the past, but also to project into the future. We work in community. And I think this is one of the biggest aspects of what we do as the people of God week to week. Recognize this. You have doubts, right? You're struggling with them. And for some reason, many of us within that aspect thinks it's, think it is up to us to resolve those internally. Which is ridiculousness. Even from an academic pursuit. Because you know what academics, you know what, I entered into the academic realm. Do you know what I found out what they do? Basically an academic reads what everybody else has done and regurgitates it and formulates something that they think is unique. Like nowhere is it respected to just be like, no, I created this myself. I've come to grips internally. That's not how life works. So if you have doubts, I'm telling you that this is probably the best place for you to be. Because you're going to be able to explore that with other people who are looking toward that. And that's the power of community. And that's the last thing that speaks to that. We think out our beliefs and that's why it's important. Why did I want to talk about doubt on Easter? Because it's what we do. It's the hard work that we're going to do all the time to ensure that we're not just sheeplings. We're just following where somebody else has been without thought. But we are wrestling with these issues. Yeah, they're complex. But we can get there together. Friends, it's okay to have doubts, but I just need to wrestle with this. Is that as much as we might have doubt about the empty tomb, it's essential to our faith. It's key to who we are. And that's why we project it. That's why Easter is such a big deal. The Apostle Paul, and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through uh, the later verses, later in the chapter. But verses 3 through 8 talks basically about the gospel. Paul says, I received what I passed on to you as first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. Okay, now recognize this. What's he doing right here? He's basically telling us the gospel, right? And what has he said so far? That he died and that he was buried. Now keep tracking with me in that verse forward. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and the last of all, he appeared to me as the one I'm normally born. Recognize this. So when Paul is saying, here's what the gospel is, yeah, he talks about the death, he talks about the burial, but where does he camp out and build a colony? At the resurrection. Because he says, look, there's an essential part about this. If you want to believe in Jesus, that he was a great teacher, have fun. But that's not the, not, that's not the locus of Christianity, what it comes down to is, is that we believe Jesus was God. And we believe that he actually died. But friends, we believe he defeated death. That's the hope and glory. That in the midst of doubt is to what we cling to. And that's what I hope that we ascribe to do, not just on Easter Sunday, but every time. Friends, feel free to doubt. If you have this stuff, eh, give me a holler, give Larry a holler. Don't talk to us too. Talk to other people. Go ahead. This is a safe place where we can freely admit that. But what we're going to do is journey together because that's what we're called to do in the community. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we get all excited because uh, Easter, Father, is just this day that many of us have this longing for within our past. But sometimes we don't even stop to ask ourselves, Father, why we have that. And that's what I would ask of this. Help us to be... Honest within our faith. To understand that it is faith, Father, that it's an extension, that it might not all make sense to us and that's okay, that we can safely explore and struggle. Father, you didn't give up at Peter and those other numbskulls for not believing what the women said. Actually, you helped them and used them to build something that we have today. And similarly, Father, we can understand that even in the midst of our doubts, there's place for us to examine this. But I would ask your help of the Spirit. Help us continue to seek you. Help us to continue to cling to your son, Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death. And we praise you for his resurrection. In his name, amen.